And he brought me to all these decision points. And I don't know if you've ever taken a test of God, but it's not a multiple choice answer. It's yes or no. It's always yes or no when God gives you a test. Yes or no. And um, so I had all these yes and no moments in my life where he kind of was challenging me about things that I always thought I believed and said I believed but maybe didn't and a lot of different things. So we've been going through each one of those gates uh, or whatever we want to call them, these tests, and we got another one today. Um, so today's message is on targeting. You know, what, what are you aiming at? Because you have a tendency to shoot around what you aim at and you don't hit anything that you're not aiming at. So uh, where are we aiming? And let me, let me begin by saying this. If I were to tell you that Christianity is a religion of faith, I think everybody would believe me. So yeah, that sounds right. So then if I went further to say, guess what? In the Bible, all throughout the Bible, there's all kind of scriptures about faith. I won't go any closer. There's all kinds of scriptures about faith. You'd say, yeah, okay, that makes sense. The Bibles are, you know, our word, and, and so that makes sense. But what may surprise you, because it surprised me, was of all the verses about faith in the Bible, exactly two of them appear in the Old Testament. Just two. The Hebrew word uh, for faith is, sounds a little bit like amen. It's a imam. And that, f- that word faith shows exactly two different scriptures. They're not exactly scriptures you would base a sermon of faith on. The first one is in Deuteronomy. He's actually talking about lack of faith. And then the other one's in Habakkuk. And uh, again, these aren't like really great s- sermons that you'd preach about faith. These are just there. Now, the rest of the faith scriptures, some 347 of them, just show up in the New Testament. So the New Testament is really kind of a, a, an article of faith and the Old Testament is really about something else. In fact, if you would have talked to Abraham or Moses or some of these people and you said, talk to them about their faith, they might not know what you were talking about because that's not the term they would have used. They use different terms in the Old Testament. See, the Old Testament is about the heart. That shows up 700 sometimes in the Old Testament. It's all about the heart, right? It's about turning your heart to the Lord if your heart is pure, if your heart is right. Everything's about the heart, not the faith. It's about the heart. And then in the New Testament, um, you know, it turns into faith. And in fact, the, the New Testament writers look back on the Old Testament people and say, well, this was faith and this was faith. But the Old Testament wouldn't have used it. They would have used the term heart. Why am I making a big deal about this? Well, Jesus Christ came and he was the first teacher to put those two together because he talks about both faith and heart pretty equally. And so he brings them together, and here's the idea behind it, and this is why I think it's so important, because somewhere along the line, we as Christians kind of forgot the heart part. We always focus on the faith part. You know, if your faith were better, you'd be a better Christian, right? That's what I always was taught. You need a better, better faith, because that makes you a better Christian. We don't talk about the heart very much anymore. We kind of think that just, you know, follows along. But actually, without your heart being right, your faith is in vain. If you don't have the right heart, then all this worshiping that we're doing, all these songs we sing, means nothing. Now, I'm not telling you that. I would never make such a bold statement. No, the person who tells us is this guy named Jesus Christ. These words actually would show up in red, if you have one of the red letter edition Bibles, right? This is Jesus saying, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. See, I didn't make that up. They're just teaching doctrines as commandments of men. What, he, what he's saying is, they're just doing what guys tell them. They're just doing what other men have told them. This is just, you know, religion. It's not worshiping me because their heart's not in the right place. Jesus was really big about this heart. Without your heart being right, your faith is just useless. Now, that's not what I was taught growing up. I was taught faith was everything. 
In fact, to be honest with you, when I was taught, when I was a kid, I was taught that all of Christianity came down to one magic prayer that fits on an index card that the deacons and, and the elders used to carry around with in their pocket. They whip it out. Here, you need to pray this prayer, right? It's called the sinner's prayer, and it was the magic prayer, because if you said this prayer, you're going to heaven. That's what I was taught. No matter what you did afterwards, because I was also taught once saved, always saved, if you said this magic prayer, then you were going to be saved for the rest of your life. I mean, you could leave the church and go live a sinful life and end up dying in a hotel room with cocaine and hookers. It didn't matter. As long as you said that prayer, you were saved. Meanwhile, I was taught, if you never said that prayer, no matter what you did, you're going to hell. That's actually what I was taught. And uh, some, some places that I, I went, because I, I, I was a preacher's kid, but we moved around to different churches and, and met a lot of different people. Some of the churches said, well, no, it's not actually that. There's one more thing you need besides the magic prayer. You also need to be baptized. If you say the, the magic prayer, that's confessing Jesus with your lips, and you're baptized, that's redemption of sin, then you are saved. That's once saved, always saved. So I grew up believing that was it, and it was all about the faith, right? My heart really didn't enter into it. As long as I could say the words, that was it. But imagine my surprise when we st I start reading the Bible, and I run to this passage in the book of Acts. In fact, we talked about it because we did the Acts uh, series here a little bit ago. But here's a guy who's going to profess Jesus with his lips and be baptized, and Peter's going to tell him he's going to hell kind of rocks your faith when you find stuff like this in the Bible. So let me set this up. This guy's name is Simon the Sorcerer. Some of you may remember uh, him. So Simon the Sorcerer was a man of some power and renown in the village of Samaria. This is right after the Holy Spirit lands and Philip's going out on his little time journey, holding his ten crusades. He gets to Samaria and he tells uh, everybody about Jesus Christ and there's this huge revival in Samaria, including Simon. And we see this. And so uh, the people of Samaria believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs that he saw. Just astonished by it because he'd been a little bit of a magician. He'd done some things, but this was just, you know, another level. People, blind people getting their sight, lame people walking. So he said, this is just so different. And he's just astonished by it. But he professed him with his lips and he was baptized. To me, that was what I was told. That's all you need to do. But what happens next is Peter comes through. And Peter comes through and he starts baptizing people with the Holy Spirit. And they start speaking in tongues and doing all this stuff. And Simon's amazed. He says, I want to do this. Not, I want to speak in tongues. I want to be like you, Peter. I want to hand out the Holy Spirit. And he pulls out his checkbook and says, how much would it cost for me to be able to do that? And Peter looks at him and says, um, yeah, this isn't going to work. But, but I'm going to back up for one second, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. He, he professed him with his lips. He, he was baptized. That makes him a Christian. No. Because here's what we do. We, we say, if you read this prayer and you believe that, then you're a Christian. And if you doubt it, I'll give you other scriptures to prove you're wrong. I'll, I'll prove you doubt away. with you know, I'll bring you Romans, or I'll bring you this. See, they, they say you're saved, so that means you're saved. And what we've done is we've taken this idea of Christianity and turned into one act and this weird kind of faith that's only based on what you feel and think. I just want to say that psychological certainty is not faith. But that's kind of what we end up with. We end up with this, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can kind of faith. If we can get ourselves 
ramped up enough that we just, we're, we're, we're believing it. You know, that's not really believing from the heart, but it's all in the mind. We're believing it, and, and that makes us faithful, and that makes us Christian, and that's absolutely not at all uh, what, what is taught in the Bible. When Peter comes and sees Simon, I want you to understand that Simon's the, the celebrity. It's like, I don't know if you guys have been following us in the news, but Kanye West is Christian now. He's actually starting a church. You know, so these celebrities, Justin Bieber did that a little while ago. So these celebrities who get saved from time to time, they go, Christendom loves them. Oh, look, now look at this. This is God's great work, which is great. It's great that celebrities get saved. But sometimes we put a lot of weight on them. You know, it's like, oh, now, there's, now let's see what God does. And this is going to be really great. Simon would have been that celebrity in Samaria. Everybody knew who he was. He was a man of great power and renown. So that was Simon. So Peter comes, and, and here comes a celebrity convert in front of him. He's talking to him, and Peter looks at him, and now he's going to have the word of the Holy Spirit given to him. The Spirit's going to this thing called word of knowledge. He's going to look right through Simon, and watch what he tells him. Simon, Peter says to Simon, you have neither part nor portion in this matter, the matter being heaven, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. See, that's that part we kind of left out in our little magic faith formula. The heart still matters. Your heart's not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this weakness and pray to God that maybe the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Uh, your heart is so corrupt, you need to pray against that. And then watch what he says. He looks at him, he sees something. He says, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity or sin. He says, your problem is your heart is corrupt because you're bitter and you're nowhere near this. In other words, he's drawing a Venn diagram for him. Remember the Venn diagrams? Those of you who were in school, or some of you are still in school. The Venn diagram, those circles that show the intersections of things. This is the Venn diagram that he's drawing for uh, Simon. Here's you, here's God, and here's what you share in common, nothing. You're not even close. It's not like, well, it's kind of a little bit of a mistake you might make as an early Christian. You need to learn more. Because no, no, here's what it is. You've got no part and no portion. No portion of God's in you and no portion of you is in God. You're far, far away from heaven. Why? He, he said the right words. He did the right things. But his heart was wrong. See, the Bible puts so much on the heart. And, and it seems like Christianity today puts it all in the mind. Best-selling book, The Battlefield of the Mind. You know, there's so much people, it's like, it's this psychological certainty. We need to teach you how to, then you'll hear your prayers are getting answered and everything will be fine. And we forget that that's not what Jesus taught. Jesus brought the heart and faith together. He never ever discounted the heart. The heart's really, really an important part because the heart controls your actions, not your mind. There's skirmishes going on in your mind, sure, but the battlefield's not there. The battlefield is in your heart. That's where the battle's really being fought. That's where the war's being waged. It's for your heart. We know this because Jesus himself told us that. He says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart will come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. And it comes from your heart. And the reason for that is your heart, your, you will always go where your heart is set. And if you're struggling sometimes with your faith, it might not be your faith that's the problem. It might be your heart. Because we get pulled by our heart. Now, I actually um, was going to show something. I had a little demonstration set up. I even ordered something in from Amazon for it. And I've lost my nerve. Victoria's laughing because she saw me practicing. But when I was a kid, uh, we had toys 
different than today. We had a toy, one of the toys we had was something called a gyroscope. Young people can, can pray for me because I grew up in that tough time when that was considered a toy. We didn't have iPods or iPads or any of this stuff. Um, anyway, but this, these gyroscopes are interesting because you would, you would I'm showing you a video, I have a video of this, but the, you would take this little uh, turnal, turning thing inside of a sphere and you'd, you'd pull a string and it would go spinning really, really fast. And what would happen was it actually created its own gravitational pull. It's like a little mini planet. And it's stuck inside of this, what thing they call it, a gimbal, which moves. And so you could take this thing and put it down, and its rotation would keep it standing straight up no matter what you did to it. If it was strong enough that like you couldn't even push it over, it would come right back up. You couldn't because the gravitational pull pulled it straight up. I have a video of it here. I couldn't get it working. He's actually bouncing that on the head of a, a nail. And you can see it's, like it's just balanced like that. You can even take and put it on string and make it move on string because its, it's gravitational pull is holding up, it up. But watch what happens if it's not set the right way. If it's not set the right way, there is absolutely nothing you can do to fix it. When it is pointed in the wrong direction, it'll stay in the wrong direction. It'll never come back up. That's the heart. If it's pointed to God, it'll always pull you to God. But if it's not pointed to God, it'll never come back. Right? You have to get it pointed to God. You can't, by faith, move it up. The heart is going to drive you to where it goes. The heart will pull us to what it's set to. So it's so very, very critical that we consider our heart in all this. We spend so much time worrying about our faith. But unless our heart is set right, we're in trouble. So what do we know about the heart? You know, let's, let's go back. If that's so important... Where is the teaching that we can find about that? Well, we talked about this just two weeks ago, those of you who were here, when we talked about David. David was a 13-year-old pimply kid who got anointed to be the king of Israel for one reason and one reason only, and that was his heart. He didn't have any experience. He had no civil experience. He was not a warrior. He didn't come from any kind of bloodline. God chose him, he told us, because of his heart. And when he had removed Saul, the Lord raised up them, David as king to whom he also gave testimony and said this, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will because of his heart. Well, that's pretty good. It's pretty nice that David had that kind of a heart, but how do you get that heart? It seems like David was born with it. He was only 13 years old or so when this was said about him. So it seemed like he was actually born with that heart. A heart after God. Now, when I was a kid, I thought that meant it was like God's. Because, you know, that was the expression that my mom would sometimes use. When when my dad was kind of a little bit sloppy in things and didn't put things away, which my wife will testify, I I am also like that. And so when uh, I would not put my things away, my mom would say, oh, you're just after your, just just like your dad. You just take after him, I guess. You know, you're not going to put things away. Um, And that's what I thought it meant. But that's actually not what this scripture means. What it means is he's after God's heart constantly. He's pursuing God's heart. David has a heart that is drawn to God's heart. He wants to know what God wants. He's always looking at that first. Now, David screws up big time. He screws up in ways that would astonish us. You know, like it would be on one of these reality television shows and we wouldn't even believe it. He lusts after another man's wife. He sleeps with her. And then he tries to cover it up. When the cover-up fails, he arranges to have her husband murdered. And he takes that woman, his own wife. That's pretty bad. I mean, we've had some pretty big scandals in the church. 
We never had anything at that level, at least that I'm aware of. That's pretty, pretty bad. And yet, God loved David so much that he says, you know what, when my son comes to earth, he's going to come from your bloodline. And I will never let the kingdom of, of Israel be taken away in your lifetime. He stayed king even after that. Why? Because that heart brought him back to God. Because when David realized he had sinned before God and God called him on it, he didn't make any excuses for it. He wept bitterly and he repented because his heart was after God's. And then he writes this psalm about this time. And I want you to see what he says in because I think it's really interesting because I think it should tell us a little bit about our lives. He says this, Created me a clean heart, O God. I know my heart's dirty right now with this sin. Created me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit in me. In other words, not only clean it up, make me steadfast so I never ever do this again. But the next line is what gets me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. See, when David was anointed, the Holy Spirit came upon him and stayed with him. And David wanted that. I want you to see he's not asking God not to take the kingdom away from him. He doesn't care about the kingdom. What he's asking him is, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. See, I think David is telling us something very, very important that actually Paul picks up on later. And that is that when we have this kind of a dirty heart where it's not set to God and we're actually resisting him, like dead set against God, and our heart is corrupted, the Holy Spirit can't be with us. The Holy Spirit can't exist in that kind of a world. And the Holy Spirit's supposed to inhabit that heart, and he can't do it. Paul later puts it this way, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That's an interesting word. He says, don't, don't hold on to your stubborn sin. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. When do you grieve somebody? You grieve when you lose them. I think that's what, that's what Paul's saying. is that you actually are going to lose the Holy Spirit because of your heart. Because he can't be where that is. You're going to lose him. And that's what David said. Please don't do that. Clean me up. I'm, I'm asking for forgiveness. Don't let me lose your spirit. I don't ever, ever, ever want to lose your spirit. So Jesus said this when somebody came up and asked him once, well, um, what's the most important law in all the laws? You know, because Christianity, let's face it, I grew up same way you guys did probably, a lot of do's and don'ts, right? We have a whole list of things we're supposed to do, which are hard to do, like read the Bible and pray. A lot of things we're not supposed to do, which would be really easy to do, but we're not supposed to do it, so that's really hard. And so we have all these do's and don'ts. And so this scholar of the law came up and said, you know, which one's the most important one? If I had to pick one law to follow, what would it be? Well, the 10, you know, the top 10 list right there, the 10 commandments, what would be the number one? That's all he asks Jesus for. Jesus gives him two. And Jesus says this, when a guy comes up and asks him, Jesus answers and says, the first of all of the commandments is this. He doesn't list the Ten Commandments at all. He lists this from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Love the Lord with all your heart. And he goes on and says, the second one's like that. It's uh, it's love your neighbor as yourself. And a guy says, you know, that's really good. He actually thought about it and said, that's really good. I can see why that would be important because you're right. All the laws actually hinge upon that. That we're supposed to love our Lord God with all of our heart. And when Jesus saw it, that's what his response was. He said, you know what? You're not far from the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so that's really great. But how do we determine the direction of our heart? Seems like David was born with it. What if we weren't? What if you weren't? I would love to have my heart pointed to God. 
but I don't know if it is. And I don't know how to point it there, right? I, I'm trying to figure that out. Is there some magic prayer for that? Is there something I can do for that? And, and uh, it's like you, you get to this point, you start thinking, man, it'd be great if Jesus, while he was telling us all this about the heart, would have given us one thing, maybe some kind of step-by-step. Oh, and by the way, if you want to turn your heart to God, this is how you do it. That'd be nice. Oh, wait a minute. He did. He actually does tell us. He slides it into another verse. You have to watch for it carefully. He kind of just slips it in there. And it actually tells you how to turn your heart to God. But I'm going to warn you right now, you're not going to like it. Because this is what he says. He says, don't lay your treasures up on earth where moths and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Lay yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where all thieves do not break in and steal. And here it comes. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I always thought that was the other way around. That you put your treasure where your heart was. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, no, no. Where your treasure goes, your heart follows. Because he knows us. We watch our treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And I know what you guys are thinking. Why is it always coming down to mind with you preachers? <laughs> Every time. I know I get people angry at me when I talk about money. I actually get asked that. Why do you talk about money? Well, you understand Jesus talks about money more than he talks about love. Just say it. Count the scriptures. Because money is so important because it has such a deep, deep grab on us. It is one thing that's always holding on to us. And so people say, ah, you know, ah, you preachers, you're just trying to take my money because you want to live, okay. You all know this, but I don't get a salary for this sermon. And I know right about now you're thinking, yeah, that's about right. But I don't get a salary for this sermon. I don't get a salary for any of them. I don't get paid. It makes no difference in my life at all whether you give a dollar or nothing to the church. My, my salary tomorrow is going to be the same, zero dollars. It makes no difference to me if you give to the church, but it makes a big difference to you. According to Scripture, I'm just telling you what's in the Scripture. I tithe here. I don't get paid. I actually pay for the privilege of preaching. How about that? Uh, so I, but I know. I mean, I know. People say, well, you know, I had a guy last night saying, well, I can't give. He was visiting from another church. He said, I can't give 10% to all of you. I said, well, I don't need you to give 10% here if you're giving 10% somewhere else. But he says, you know, I, I need money. I need money to live. And of course you need money. Everybody needs money. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. Yeah, that's how it gets its name. All right? Everybody needs money. I'm not telling you, and I told him, I said, look, if you give 10% to their church, don't give anything here. That's okay. It's not you have to give it here. You have to give it to God. That's where the treasure needs to be. You know, it doesn't count if you're giving money to the pet shelter. That's fine, fine charity if you want to give money there or whatever. But this is talking the kingdom of heaven. Now, the good news is that God actually sets it up. But you don't have to give all your money. Only 10%. That's all, just 10%. Now, we're talking about a subject that people hate to talk about, something called tithing. And I know that a lot of you have been beat up over this. And I know a lot of you have given money to churches and watched them do really strange, questionable things with it. But the point is you're giving money to God. That's it. You're giving money to God. And that's the idea behind it. But I want to give you the history of tithing because I get arguments about this all the time. That tithing, that's Old Testament law. We're New Testament grace. We don't have to tithe. And I get told that, I've actually been told that by preachers. So let me quickly give you a history of tithing. I'm not going to spend any time on any of this, but the first time tithing shows up is Genesis 4-3, which is long before the law starts. 
just for the record, the law, when we talk about the law, that comes in Exodus. That's Moses when he brings down the law from God. That's that law, right? That's the law that they're living under. This is before that. And, and, and it shows up again in Genesis 14, 20. We just talked about this a couple weeks ago because we went over the scripture. Abraham ties to Melchizedek. This is before the law. And Melchizedek is considered a priest of God. We know that from the New Testament. Jesus is actually a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So he was tithing to God by giving money to Melchizedek. Then in, in Numbers is when the law really lets in and really explains what tithing is all about and why and why you need to tithe because it needs to support the temple. And then Malachi 3, these are all Old Testament, is when he really lays out the blessing and the curse in, uh, associated with tithing. But I want to spend some time on Luke 11.42 because I have a lot of people tell me, you know what, tithing is not mentioned in the New Testament. Jesus never teaches it. Au contraire, Jesus himself, red letter in your Bible, does teach about tithing. So what's going on here in the scripture is he's arguing with the Pharisees as he often does, you know, his favorite people to argue with, um, this, the brood of vipers and those cute little names he calls them. And, in, and he's trying to tell them that your heart's not turned to God and you're doing a lot of things out of show, but you're not really turned to God. And he says this, he says, woe to you Pharisees. For you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and love of God. Now, let me explain what that is. They weren't allowed, by the way the things were distributed, they didn't get land in the Holy Land. The, the tribe of Levi didn't get land. And so all they had were little gardens. And they would grow mints and they would grow cumin and they would grow all kinds of herbs there for their, you know, to season their food. And they would actually take 10% of the mint and sprinkle it around the altar to show, see, I'm tithing but they weren't doing their job. They were taking bribes behind the scenes and a bunch of things. And so Jesus was calling them out on it. Now, if Jesus wants to overturn tithing, this is the time to do it. But he doesn't. He says, these you ought to have done. He doesn't say you shouldn't have tithed. He says, no, you're supposed to tithe. He's reaffirming tithing here. He says, you should tithe, but you shouldn't neglect the other things you're supposed to be doing. Jesus reaffirms tithing. He never, he never discounts it. Now, um, what about that blessing and the curse thing? Because there's a lot of talk about that. I'm going to show it to you real quick, then I'm going to tell you this whole thing's been leading up to a personal testimony about my experience with tithing. By the way, I don't like it either, right? I really don't either. I'm with you. I wish I could keep all my money and just give God what's left over. That's what I want to do. And I'll tell you why I don't. Um, but first of all, let me show you this stuff in Malachi. So this is very strong, and a lot of preachers love pounding on this scripture a lot. Will a man rob God? No, you've robbed me. You say, in what way did we rob you? In tithes and offerings. And because of that, you're cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Now what God's referring to is, if you remember when Adam and Eve fall, there's a curse upon the land, and it, you have to wake, work by the sweat of your brow in order to make things work. There's a curse, right? And everything you're coming for still is a curse. And the idea behind tithing was it removed the curse. He says, you're still cursed with the curse. He goes on. He says, bring all the tithes into my storehouse, that there may be food in my house, the temple. Now try me in this. And this word try is also usually translated test. The only time in the Bible, God tells you you can test them. The only time. See if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing, there will not even be room enough to hold it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. So that's the big verse about 
tithing sounds pretty good. I like this idea of so much blessing, I can barely contain it. I like also the idea of God rebuking the devourer because sometimes it seems like my money gets devoured. So that seems like a very, very pertinent verse to me. So let me tell you my story about tithing. And I've shared this here before. But um, I grew up blessed by God in more ways than I can count. And yet I never tithed. I mean, I was a preacher's kid, I didn't tithe. I guess I kind of knew about it but it was never really explained to me in detail. And I just didn't do it. I gave, you know, I gave money, but I never tithed. In my whole life, I never. When Victoria and I got married 16 years ago and she uh, came to Texas uh, to live and um, we got married, we still weren't tithing. Not out of my salary. God had blessed us and, and I was actually kind of in cruise control in my job at the time with it God had blessed me with, but I wasn't tithing, I was giving but I wasn't tithing. We went to church. The church we went to, ironically, thinking back on it now, was Gateway Church. And Gateway Church pastor is a guy named Robert Morris, who has literally written a book on tithing. It's called The Blessed Life. And it's all about tithing. And that was a series. You think this series is tough. Wait until you sit down for six weeks on tithing, because that's what we've sat through twice in that church. Uh, he was actually flown around the country to preach to other churches because he was so good at explaining tithing to people. Uh, we listened to it twice. We still didn't tithe. So maybe he wasn't that good, but uh, we still didn't tithe. <laughs> he was dealing with some hard hearts, I guess. Then uh, I lost my job, uh, but they gave me a severance pay. And so we took the money and ran, and we went uh, back east. We ended up in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, God was still so faithful to us because right when my severance pay ran out, like the week it runs out, the next week I started my new job with a defense contractor. At first making the same amount of money. Now by this time in our lives, we were kind of moving away from God and we've definitely moved away from each other. I've kind of been honest about that. We had a pretty bad marriage, I would say then. We didn't fight all the time. That's uh, what happens before the bad marriage sets in. The really bad marriage is when you know what you can't talk about and you just avoid it. And we're basically living together separately. I had my things I did. Victoria had her things she did. It wasn't like we did something horrible to each other. None of us, neither one of us had an affair. But we just kind of settled in saying, well, this is life. Because we'd both been through a divorce before. We thought, oh, that's just too painful to go through. So we decided, eh, it's better to stick with you than get a divorce. So I'll stick with you. That's where our marriage was. And we were going to church and we were giving. But we weren't tithing. And then all of a sudden... This contract landed, and it was because of some things I'd done. And so I got this huge raise with my contractor company. And um, I'm looking at crazy money, what I consider crazy money. And um, Victoria and I were looking at these paychecks coming in. And after the second one came in, we thought, this is supernatural. I've never seen a paycheck like this. So maybe we haven't been faithful to God, but God's been faithful to us. And we both looked at each other because, remember, we knew what we were supposed to be doing. And we said, we should tithe. Both of us. And uh, I'm not going to speak for Victoria. Maybe you can ask her why she said that. I'll tell you why I said that. I didn't want God to stop giving me the checks. I was afraid. I said, you know what? God really blessed me here. If I don't tithe, he might take it away. So we should tithe. So we decide we're going to tithe. So we sit down and write our first tithe check. And we pick up, picked up the check. Because tithe, by the way, 10% before taxes. 10% gross. That's a tithe. So we looked at that before taxes and went, oh, we can't write that check. That is nuts. I want you to think about this for a minute. I literally am going before God and saying, God, whoa, you have blessed me so greatly that I can't afford a tithe. 
It's like, it's just too much. Right? It's too much. I was like, God, oh, I guess I blessed you too much. That's a crazy thing to say to God, but that's what we said. So what we said instead was, well, um, if we can't do that, why don't we go ahead and just give 5%? I mean, you know, with all this money, it's still more money than we've ever given. It's pretty good. Maybe we'll work our way up to a tithe. Now, if you want to try that, go ahead. Let me know how that works out for you. I'm going to tell you how it worked out for me. And I want to be really clear about something right now. I'm telling you about my personal experience. I'm not giving you theology, okay? What I'm saying is what's true for me may not be true for you. Because I recognize that God works with all this differently. But let me tell you what happened for me next. We started to give 5% and after we gave about two of those, my paycheck got cut in half. Now I'm not really, really good with math, but I can do 10% and 5% and I can figure out that in fact, the devourer came and took half my paycheck because it wasn't covered. That's what, it was just clear as day to me. And you may say, well, that's a really weird interpretation. But not only was that my interpretation, that was Victoria's instant interpretation as well. Our tithe protected half of my paycheck and half of it was taken by the devourer. And we looked at each other and, well, that was freaky. You know, again, these percentages work out exactly. You know, okay. So we, we did something for the first time in our marriage. We actually stepped out of faith. It says, you know what? Let's keep the amount the same. So now it was 10%. It wouldn't be long after that when we left Virginia, left that company, moved up to Pittsburgh, and it wouldn't be long after that before God would start moving on our hearts to start Spirit Chapel. I believe that God was trying to teach me a lesson so I could pass it on and that he cares about this stuff. He cares about our hearts. Now, I want to come back to this verse about this whole blessing thing because this gets preached on a lot. And it's a horrible teaching. Because what teachers teach is, hey, if you, you can't outgive God, if you give money to God, he'll give you more. Okay, that's exactly opposite of what this is supposed to be doing. Remember, the whole thing's about the heart. If I'm giving to get, my heart hasn't changed. I'm still looking out for what's best for me. The whole point of this is to move my heart to God. That's the whole point of it. That's horrible teaching. And I would love to tell you that I gave money to God and he rewarded me with my salary back and all this, but no. No. But I'll tell you what he did. He saved our marriage. And Victoria and I were talking about this even last night. I'm still not exactly sure how. I don't really know exactly. I can't step by step it with you. But after, we, after this whole thing happened and we're giving all of a sudden our hearts because they were turned to God, he was able to deal with our hearts turning toward each other. And over the next couple months through a series of coincidences, I guess, God suddenly starts moving us back together. And, and, and suddenly we weren't giving up on the marriage anymore, which means we start fighting more. But that was okay because now God could work on both of our hearts because we're pointed to him. And I remember uh, there were a couple times, because those of you who've been through a divorce, you know there's a feeling that comes right before the divorce. You, know, you kind of get a feeling like this is it. And I have had that feeling, you know, and when we get really these horrible fights and stuff, I'd have that feeling again. Here it comes, you know, here it comes. This is the beginning of it. And I, I remember this one time I was, I was on a business trip and Victoria was left at the house and something happened. I can't remember what it was. She probably knows because wives are cool like that. She probably never forgets. But uh, I can't tell you what it was, but something was going on and I was out of town because I had to go to this business trip. I drove down to it. It was really late. I'm trying to find my hotel room in the rain and she calls me and she just lays into me. 
Yeah, I have to do this. And every time you're out of town, these things happen. You're conveniently working and all this. I'm thinking, man, I'm away from home. You're sleeping in your bed tonight. I'm not. You know, because this is like so unfair to me. But I'm keeping my mouth shut because I'm afraid what's going to happen if I start talking. You know, this is going to get really bad. And we're, it's bad to have that argument when you're not with each other. And so I thought, I'm just going to kind of bite it down and not say anything, you know. And I hung up the phone. I threw the threw it on the, on, the, on the seat next to me in the car because I'm lost. Now I'm totally lost. I have no idea where I am. Driving around, trying to find where my hotel is. And a little bit later, the phone rings. And I look down, and it's Victoria calling back. I thought, oh, I am not talking to her. I'm not going through. I don't have time for this. I can't deal with this. I thought, oh, I better. I be- that'll be worse. So I picked up, yes, you know. And she says, uh, there's a silence for a moment. And then she says, God told me to call you back. I said, Okay. He told me I have to apologize to you. I said, really? <laughs> he says, yeah. And uh, she says, I'm sorry. I know that you're out there working and trying to make money and it's a bad, wrong thing for me to do. And so I thought, well, thank you. You know, I thanked her for that and we kind of finished the call up. I hung up and I thought, God, that was amazing. And I felt like God said this, I'm just trying to protect your tender little heart. You know, it's like, but this has happened. And, and, and she could tell stories the other way. You know, and God told me I have to apologize to you. You know, I was like, because God was working with us like two little disobedient kids, right? But, but we had, he had our hearts now. And so he could start working us together until it finally got to the point where we realized, well, we're not going to get divorced. God's not going to let us. This marriage matters to God. We're never getting divorced. In fact, it was, I don't know how many months ago it was, maybe a year, I can't remember. But there's this one time we got a really bad fight. It was here. It was when we were still at Spirit Chapel. Just, you know, <laughs> your pastor and his wife, we fight. Um, and I walked out of the house and, I, and that feeling kind of started coming back, and I said, you know what, God? I don't know how you're going to fix this, but you're going to, so just start. You know, it's going to be her, it's going to be me. Just go ahead, you fix it, and I'll wait till you tell me what to do because I know we're not going to get divorced. I just know it. It can't happen. It's kind of like um, Billy Graham's wife was asked once, and says, you know, this reporter's interviewing, and says, yeah, Mrs. Graham, are you telling me in 56 years of marriage you never once considered divorce? She said, Never murder several times, but never divorce. <laughs> That's kind of how it is, right? And so I, I realized that the blessing God gave me wasn't in money. You know, the blessing he gave me was protection of my family, protection of my marriage. And, you know, I know it sounds trite, but you really can't put a price tag on that. But that was only possible because both of our hearts were turned to God. When we're both living selfishly, you can't make those things. She would have never made that phone call to me a year before. This is what God does when heart comes to us. We have to turn our hearts to God. Now, you can go through the motions and it can mean nothing. Or you can decide, you know what, I'm going to trust God. And why money matters is because the first thing God wants to teach you, this, I don't have time to develop all this, but let me tell you this is true. The first thing God teaches us all is Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. If you get that, the rest of the faith is easier. If you don't get that, you're never going to trust God with anything. If you don't trust God to provide for you, you're not going to be able to trust him for anything. It's always going to be this, well, I understand what, you all, what your Bible says and everything, but I've got to go deal with the real world right now, God. So I'm going to go have to go deal with it. I don't know why we believe God created the universe and the stars and the planets and everything else, but he cannot understand the economy of the American <laughs> life. He's like, oh, you, don't, you don't understand bills, God. I don't know. You don't understand how, how this compounding interest thing works. I've I, I, I got to do this myself. As long as you're not trusting God to take care of you and provide for you, you'll never be able to take, trust God for everything. 
So can you trust God to provide for you or do you just want God to save you later? You know, well, you just go ahead and take care of yourself now. Because that's kind of how I lived. I trust you to save me when I die. But right now, I got to take care of this. Listen, uh, if your heart is not set on God, everything we're doing today was for nothing. You worship him in vain. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll give us a new idea of the life you have.